From Silicon Valley to Wall Street, the promise and perils of artificial intelligence are playing out on the world stage. But what will the next phase of AI adoption look like? Which companies from big tech to startups will dominate? And where do the risks and unintended consequences lie? I'm Emily Chang. Join me at Bloomberg Tech in San Francisco, May 9th, to answer many of the industry's burning questions. Alongside SNAP's Evan Spiegel, Xbox president Sarah Bond, OpenAI's Brad Lightcap, top researcher Dr. Fei-Fei Li of Stanford, and many more. More details and just a few tickets left at Bloomberg.com slash TechSF. This is Bloomberg Law with June Grosso from Bloomberg Radio. That's what makes these cases hard is that there are First Amendment interests all over the place. And not only are there First Amendment interests all over the place, as Justice Elena Kagan put it, but the justices' questions seem to be all over the place as well, as they considered whether public officials can block citizens on social media. The two cases involve school board members in San Diego and a city manager in Michigan who blocked followers on social media. Of course, evoking discussion of former President Donald Trump's efforts to block people from his Twitter account. I mean, I I don't think a citizen would be able to really understand the Trump presidency, if you will, uh, without any access to all the things that the president said on that account. It was an important part of how he wielded his authority. And to cut cut a citizen off from that is to cut a citizen off from part of the way that government works. The central question is whether the social media activity constitutes state action, making it subject to the First Amendment. And the federal appellate courts in the cases came to opposite conclusions. The justices presented a host of social media scenarios to the lawyers. Here are Justices Sonia Sotomayor and Brett Kavanaugh. So let's assume a mayor says, I'm setting up a hotline for emergencies on my Facebook or Twitter. And um, if you have an emergency, call that hotline, and I (coughs) will use the power of my office to set in motion government response for your emergency. Seems to me that that's government action, isn't it? But suppose the city manager on the personal site says, we have new recycling rules, you have to use a blue bin, has to be at the curb, will be picked up on Wednesdays. If you have any questions, contact me. That's only on the personal site, not on the official site. Is that state action? Joining me is Professor Eric Goldman, co-director of the High Tech Law Institute at Santa Clara University Law School. Eric, explain the main issue in these cases. The core issue is what should happen when government officials maintain social media accounts? Can they treat it as if they're ordinary citizens, or are they governed by the rules that apply to government generally? And are the issues in the two cases before the court basically the same? They're basically the same. There are little details about exactly how the particular government officials were using their social media accounts that might matter to the final conclusion. 
But the core questions the court's asking and the legal tests it's likely to adopt are probably going to be the same. So let's talk about the concerns of some of the justices. And Justice Elena Kagan said there are First Amendment interests all over the place. I thought that was a really great line, honestly. Uh, Justice Kagan has just such a great way of turning phrases, and she's absolutely right. There are First Amendment considerations on all sides. It's not like there's an easy path forward that balances all the respective interests. On the one hand, people who work for the government should be free to engage their communities and express themselves publicly as private citizens. That's the constitutionally protected right. They don't give up that right by going to work for the government. On the other hand, when the government controls online discourse spaces where people are talking to each other, there's a really real and significant risk of censorship. And so the concern is that if the government officials can act like private individuals, they can functionally censor conversations. Now, if they're acting as a private individual, they're allowed to do that. But if they're acting as a government, they're not. And so Either we're going to circumscribe the free speech rights of government employees or we're going to allow government employees to circumvent the free speech rights of the people who want to engage with them. Somebody's going to lose something here. Yeah, so Trump came up naturally, and Justice Elena Kagan said Trump was conducting a lot of government on his Twitter account. It's an important part of how he wielded his authority, and to cut a citizen off from that is to cut a citizen off from part of the way the government works. And in these local cases, it's just as important for constituents to hear what their school board members are saying or their town managers and the like. It's not just to be able to hear what the government officials are saying, but also to be able to talk back to them. And even more importantly, in certain circumstances, be able to talk to each other as constituents or as citizens that are responding to the posting of a government official. And so when a government official exercises some of the tools that are provided them via social media to control conversations, what they're really doing is distorting the conversation that citizens might want to have with each other. So I don't know why. To me, it seems like, you know, if you're posting public information on a website, on a Facebook page, that that should be open to the public and the public able to comment. And if you want not to do that, then have a private page as well. So certainly those ideas came out. In fact, there are three different categories of pages that a government official might have. They may have a official government page. They may have a campaign page, which is not part of their official government duties, but still is an important place for them to evangelize the work they're doing. And they may have a personal page that has nothing to do with their role in government. And figuring out which account is in which category is something that is baffling to us as citizens when we see our government officials online. And it's also vexing to the government officials because so often they want to take their victory laps. They want to evangelize their work, to tout their successes. And we aren't sure. Are they touting them as official government policy, as a campaign promise, or just because they're touting their own work as a a private individual? And the court didn't know how to approach that issue. They understood the trade-offs, but there was no clear way to move forward that was going to satisfy everybody. So I want to get your reaction to what Justice Amy Coney Barrett said. I think it's very difficult 
when you have an official who can in some sense define his own authority. So I think for a governor or, you know, President Trump, it's a harder call than someone like a police officer who's a subordinate. Or I could, you know, my locker could just start posting things and say this is the official business of the Barrett Chambers, right? And and that wouldn't be okay. But if, you know, the that wouldn't be okay. <laughs> that comment got a laugh, of course, but what do you think about the content of what she's saying. I mean, the exact example she gave was kind of weird because a clerk wouldn't be likely to be able to set up and speak on behalf of their judge that employs them. So that was a weird example. But the broader principle is 100% correct, that the court is trying to figure out how do they simultaneously govern the top of the political hierarchy, like a president or a governor or even a mayor, someone who's at the top of the organizational pyramid, and all the people who are rank-and-file government employees, some of whom might also be able to speak on behalf of the government, others of whom have no real legitimacy to do so. And the Supreme Court is struggling to figure out how can we come up with one rule that covers all of those different types of job responsibilities and status in the hierarchy. And it's possible that they cannot come up with a single rule that will cover it. They may need multiple rules that will have to be iterated over time. So you think that there's no clear legal test that they could come out with? Honestly, no, there is no clear legal test. And I think we can be a little bit more emphatic that the different considerations include things like what's the employee's job and what tools are available in social media to be able to control conversations and which of those tools was wielded and how did the person describe or characterize their account and how much of the account was used with official related postings versus personal postings. Like we need a multidimensional matrix to try to figure out where to place all the different nodes in those questions. And that's why even with two cases in front of the Supreme Court that they can use to compare and contrast, they still don't have enough cases to cover the full range of facts that are going to be implicated by their ruling. Coming up, we'll discuss whether there was any consensus on the court. I'm June Grosso, and you're listening to Bloomberg. From Silicon Valley to Wall Street, the promise and perils of artificial intelligence are playing out on the world stage. But what will the next phase of AI adoption look like? Which companies from big tech to startups will dominate? And where do the risks and unintended consequences lie? I'm Emily Chang. Join me at Bloomberg Tech in San Francisco, May 9th, to answer many of the industry's burning questions. Alongside SNAP's Evan Spiegel, Xbox President Sarah Bond, OpenAI's Brad Lightcap, top researcher Dr. Fei-Fei Li of Stanford, and many more. More details and just a few tickets left at Bloomberg.com slash TechSF. I've been talking with Professor Eric Goldman of Santa Clara University Law School about Supreme Court oral arguments over whether public officials can be sued for restricting access to their social media feeds. It's the first of several social media clashes this term. So how about the idea that was floated by Justice Ketanji Brown-Jackson of a clear disclaimer indicating that government officials were posting on social media in their personal capacity, or I guess vice versa, in their government capacity? 
certainly no doubt that legends would help at least us as constituents know what to expect. But the disclaimers could just be another form of a manipulation by the uh, government official. They could say, I'm not speaking officially, but then speak in ways that actually are fully official. Or vice versa. They could say this official government account, but let me highlight some of my personal attributes um, and treat them as if they're a part of the government responsibility. And so the disclaimer doesn't really solve the problems that I think we have, but no doubt that if somebody portrays their account as an official government account without trying to walk it back or qualify that, I think the rule should be that we should hold them to that approach. But if they don't officially represent as part of their government account, it still might be part of their government function. And so the disclaimer is not going to be complete. The Biden administration was backing the government officials' positions. They characterized the Facebook and Twitter feeds as private property. That seemed to me to be a not a great concept here. It's a really awkward conversation because we know that that the social media services have their own rules. They have their own technological options that differ amongst themselves. And they have the ability to intervene with respect to particular items of content, irrespective of whether or not the Constitution would permit the government official to take that action. So they're like the elephant in the room. Everyone knows that the social media services are an integral player in this conversation, but they're not the plaintiff or the defendant. And as a result, they're not actually represented in this litigation. And as a result, the Supreme Court is likely to treat them as this opaque third-party player who is immaterial or inconsequential to the rules. That's actually a good outcome. I really don't want the Supreme Court talking about social media as a private entity or not. I don't want them making hard lines when that's not the question the government has to answer. But it's impossible to ignore the shadow that they cast over everything that takes place on their services. The federal appeals courts reached opposite conclusions in the lower court cases? That's correct. The Ninth Circuit held that the government officials, in that case school board members, were acting in their function as uh, government officials when they blocked some constituents from accessing their social media account. In the Sixth Circuit, it was a government employee who had also blocked individuals. The court had held, in that case, that he was acting as a private individual. That was his private account. So there were three hours, I believe, of oral arguments. (laughs) Did you see some justices, some blocks of justices sort of coming to some conclusions? Or did you see any patterns? The short answer is no. Really, the oral arguments were quite opaque about where the judges are likely to end up, which is unusual, but one would have hoped that we would have been able to get a clearer line from the oral arguments. Having said that, there are two things that stood out to me. First is that some justices seem to be gravitating around the test that was advocated by the Department of Justice and was endorsed by the lawyers for the government employees about looking at the duties of the government official and their authority to speak on behalf of the government. And so Justice Gorsuch, for example, at one point said, it sounds like we got consensus. That's the right test. Um, I don't know if there was consensus, but it wouldn't surprise me if the test looked something like that. At the end of the oral arguments, Justice Kagan, once again, had a really powerful turn of the phrase. She came and basically blasted the government lawyers, saying that the government lawyers' proposed test 
was really out of sync with the importance of social media to the government function and would limit the ability of us as constituents in order to be able to defend our own interests when the government keeps embracing social media. So I saw kind of two opposite approaches there. Justice Gorsuch saying, you know, sounds good to me. Let's go with a test that you proposed. And Justice Kagan saying that test is actually really harmful to the future. Was there a split down ideological lines or did this cross ideological lines? I couldn't put together a pattern that represented any kind of ideological or partisan uh, fit. But having said that, I would say that it seemed like some of the, quote, more conservative justices were more inclined to support the government employees' freedom to do what they want, whereas some of the, quote, more liberal justices were more skeptical about how that could lead to censorship. So at times when we've had these oral arguments at the Supreme Court involving you know, the internet, texting, social media, the justices have seemed to be a step behind, maybe more than one step. Did it seem like they fully grasped what was going on in these cases? They really didn't. This was yet another example of how the internet baffles Supreme Court justices. And just to be clear, we don't know how many Supreme Court justices spend time on social media, but it's not like they do it publicly. So they're just not familiar with social media at the same degree that most of us as everyday users are. So it's not surprising that it's a little bit baffling to them if they're not immersed in that as part of their daily functions. But there was a really awkward line that came from Chief Justice Roberts where he talked about social media and described it as the gathering of protons. And it was such a reductionist approach that social media is just about the movement of electronic pulses on the Internet. That's all it is. (laughs) And it's kind of like saying the Supreme Court's opinions are just ink on, on a piece of paper. It's a reductionist conclusion that isn't inherently wrong, but it completely misunderstands the scope and the stakes at issue in this case. And this is the first of several social media clashes that are coming up this term involving the First Amendment and how it applies to social media companies. So just to be clear, there's going to be a steady stream of Internet law cases going to the Supreme Court and likely to be decided by the Supreme Court over the next few years. We've had just this upswell of legislation trying to regulate the Internet, and many of those laws are going to end up before the Supreme Court. So we're just kind of at the beginning of this multi-year cycle where the Supreme Court is going to be regularly deciding the future of the Internet. One of the other cases they've accepted, or there's two companion cases, involve the Texas and Florida social media censorship laws. These are laws that were enacted to basically take government control over the functional operations of social media. Sounds like the kind of thing that we would think would be clearly censorship, Mm -hmm. and yet the Florida court said that some of it was struck down, some of it was okay. The Texas appellate court said, uh, it all sounds good to me. And so the future of the Internet is very much at stake in that set of cases as well, because if the Supreme Court says that the government can dictate how social media runs its operations, they are going to be dictating what editorial decisions those services can make. A lot more oral arguments on social media to come. Thanks so much, Eric. That's Eric Goldman, a professor at Santa Clara University School of Law and co-director of the High Tech Law Institute. Coming up next, we'll take a look at the effort to keep Donald Trump off the ballot in Colorado and other states. I'm June Grosso, and you're listening to Bloomberg. From Silicon Valley to Wall Street, the promise and perils of artificial intelligence are playing out on the world stage. 
But what will the next phase of AI adoption look like? Which companies from big tech to startups will dominate? And where do the risks and unintended consequences lie? I'm Emily Chang. Join me at Bloomberg Tech in San Francisco, May 9th, to answer many of the industry's burning questions. Alongside SNAP's Evan Spiegel, Xbox president Sarah Bond, OpenAI's Brad Lightcap, top researcher Dr. Fei-Fei Li of Stanford, and many more. More details and just a few tickets left at Bloomberg.com slash TechSF. We're going to walk down and I'll be there with you. We're going to walk down. We're going to walk down anyone you want. But I think right here, we're going to walk down to the Capitol. A group of voters in Colorado are using Donald Trump's fiery speech on the ellipse before the assault on the Capitol on January 6th as part of their unprecedented lawsuit seeking to keep Trump off the ballot in Colorado in 2024. It's the first trial in a fight playing out in courts across the country, citing a rarely used clause in the 14th Amendment that prohibits those who engaged in insurrection against the Constitution from holding higher office. But this attempt raises so many legal and political questions. Joining me to help answer them is elections law expert Richard Hassan, a professor at UCLA Law School. Rick, start by telling us about this clause in the 14th Amendment. So the 14th Amendment contains a part in Section 3 that says people who participated in an insurrection or who gave aid and comfort to those who did, who had served in office and who had taken an oath to support the Constitution, are not eligible to run for office again. This was a provision that was put in the Constitution after the Civil War to prevent former people who were in the U.S. government who became part of the Confederacy from running for office again, unless Congress had specifically approved that they could be rehabilitated and back in society. And this has obviously never been used to try to stop a presidential candidate from getting on the ballot, but is there any precedent for this? Well, right after the Civil War, there were people who were subject to this provision. Just last year, there was someone uh, who was a local election official who was found to have violated this, but it wasn't fully tested in the courts. So we're really dealing with a provision that hasn't been put in place in the modern times and really fleshed out. So there are a ton of both legal and political issues that are going to have to be worked out within the next year in order for us to know if and how this might apply to Donald Trump. And the judge in the Colorado case, so she'll have to decide if the language at issue gives courts the authority to disqualify him, and then whether Trump fits under that language? That's right. So there are questions as to whether this can even apply in a primary election as opposed to a general election. The constitutional provision speaks to holding office, not running for office. There are questions as to whether it applies to someone who took an oath as president and whether that person fits into the definition of those people covered under this part of the 14th Amendment. There are all of these kinds of legal questions that precede the question of whether, if it does apply to a presidential candidate, and it can apply in a primary election, and it can be a state court judge that's making that decision, can it apply against Donald Trump? That is, did he engage in this kind of activity that would be prohibited under this part of the Constitution? 
A lot of questions. So Eric Olson, the attorney for the Colorado Challengers, has argued that there are four basic components. Trump took an oath as an officer of the U.S. The Capitol attack was an insurrection. Trump engaged in that insurrection, and Colorado's Secretary of State can be ordered by the court to keep him off the state's ballot because of it. Going backwards, is there a question as to whether Colorado's Secretary of State can be ordered to keep someone off the ballot? Right. So there are questions about that, in part because the provision itself doesn't speak to running for office. It speaks to holding office. So just imagine a kind of different scenario. Imagine that someone's 33 and they want to run for president. You have to be 35. So what do you do with that person? Do you let them run for office? And then if if they win, Congress just doesn't accept their votes because the person is not qualified? If not, who decides to take them off the ballot? And so there are state ballot rules. Some states provide that if you're not going to meet the qualifications, you can't run. Other states don't have that explicitly. So so there's all kinds of questions about that. And so outside the questions about, you know, the language and, and what that entails, is the hardest thing for the challengers to show that Trump engaged in that insurrection? Well, they don't have to show that he necessarily engaged in it. He could have aided and supported it. And that's probably would be an easier case to make. But I don't know that that is an easier question than the legal questions that precede it. There are legal arguments, for example, that this only applies to people who took an oath, who were officers of the United States and took an oath to support the Constitution. And there are arguments that it doesn't cover the president, which is kind of a strange argument. Why would it cover every office holder but the president? Uh, But there are some textualists, some originalists, who have been making the argument that it doesn't apply, and so a court's going to have to resolve that. There are just so many different twists and turns that in order for Trump to actually be kept off the ballot, everything has to go the way of the challengers. And there's a lot of off-ramps for that potentially not to happen. The voters group here has played that fiery speech that Trump made on the ellipsis on January 6th. But like the call to Georgia Secretary of State Brad Raffensperger, Trump often qualifies what he says. Is that going to pose a problem for the challengers here? Right. Well, I don't think they would necessarily have to rely only on his words, but on the activities that he partook in the weeks after the 2020 election, when uh, many people believe he tried to overturn the results of that election through illegal means. So it wouldn't even necessarily have to be only the January 6th activity. Maybe the whole thing was a kind of insurrection. But because the Constitution doesn't define that term, I think that there's room for arguing about all of these things. Judge Wallace has laid out nine topics to be addressed at the trial. And, you know, if you look at them, they're questions that have been debated since the insurrection and that the country is divided on. And so it seems like no matter what she rules, politically, it's going to be difficult, a nightmare. I mean, because people are so divided about these questions. Well, we just did a conference for the UCLA Safeguarding Democracy Project. And and one of the panels that I put together was a group of experts who study democracies around the world. Because we're not the only democracy that has problems with candidates who don't necessarily follow the rule of law and who might try to subvert democratic outcomes. And the bottom line of these experts was that unless there's a large 
majority of the country that wants to disqualify someone, you're running a real political risk if you say that the preferred candidate of a large percentage of people in the United States can't run for office. That looks like you're taking a choice away from them. Even if there are strong legal grounds to do this, it raises political risk. As you said, the the questions here are up for debate. As far as scholars are concerned, and I know that several scholars have come out in support of this theory about the 14th Amendment, which side would you say that the weight of scholarship is on as far as the 14th Amendment applying? Well, quite frankly, I say the weight of scholarship doesn't exist because (laughs) very few people, there are, you know, literally under a dozen people in the United States who I think have studied this seriously, you know, who are still alive today. So what kicked this off uh, as, I think, something that is seriously on the agenda was a law review article that two conservative law professors, Will Boddy and uh, Michael Stokes Paulson, posted. It's going to be appearing in the University of Pennsylvania Law Review that made a conservative originalist case for including Donald Trump under this provision of the Constitution. And that has spurred additional research. That has spurred more supporters and detractors from coming forward. But I think it's very hard to say what the weight of scholarly authority is. I can tell you I've studied election law for many decades, and it's really not an issue that was on my (laughs) radar because, you know, you don't expect that insurrection and civil war type situations are going to have applications in modern times. Those who studied this before the Trump era were primarily historians. If Trump is convicted in the federal January 6th case before the election, would that be too late to then take him off the ballots in the states? I don't think the 14th Amendment question and the federal criminal charges ask the same question. That is, Trump could be convicted of all of the federal charges. But that doesn't prove that he engaged in insurrection, as that term is used in the Constitution. It certainly would be a stronger political case to remove someone from the ballot who has been convicted of crimes related to trying to manipulate the last election. But that doesn't necessarily answer the question that is posed by the 14th Amendment. Trump just filed a lawsuit to shut down a similar case in Michigan, and there is a hearing set for tomorrow, I think, in Minnesota. Are all these challenges similar, or are they different? Well, they're all similar in the sense that they raise the question whether Trump is disqualified from serving as president. They come up in very different procedural contexts. Every state has their own rules as to how they decide who gets on the ballot, how people get removed from the ballot. But ultimately, I think, and I very much hope, that this issue gets resolved by the United States Supreme Court sooner rather than later. It's not good for the country for there to be uncertainty. And it would be especially bad for Trump to become the Republican nominee. And then as the election time is getting close, for Trump to be removed from the ballot, then that would really remove a a choice from voters at a time when it may be very difficult to replace Trump with a different candidate. So I would hope, whichever way this is going to come out, that we get some finality as soon as possible. I mean, it seems like no matter which way these cases go, that they're going to end up at the Supreme Court, don't you think? I do hope that they end up at the Supreme Court. One of my concerns is that there are many doctrines that the courts use to avoid deciding issues. For example, the case is not ripe yet. 
the person who's suing doesn't have standing, you know, that, that we should abstain. This is a political question. So there are a lot of off-ramps where the court could avoid deciding the issue. But if the court is ultimately going to be the one deciding the issue rather than leaving it to, say, Congress on January 6, 2025, it's better for it to weigh in sooner and for the country to have some definitive answer on this question. When you read about this, they say, well, if it goes to the Supreme Court, there are three Trump appointees. It's a conservative court. Do you have any inkling as to, you know, what will concern the justices? Well, so we know that these justices are not simply going to do Trump's bidding. And we know that because they all rejected the Hail Mary case brought from Texas trying to throw out the Electoral College votes of other states. They're going to, if this gets to the court and they reach the merits, they're going to use their usual methodologies to decide this question. So some of the justices who are more originalist-oriented are going to ask questions under what the original public meaning of that term was. Others are going to look more eclectically at different means of interpretation. But I think it's very early to say what the court might do, in part because we don't know exactly which case is going to get up there at what time and what the legal basis is going to be for potentially removing or not removing him from the ballot. It might be that the Supreme Court doesn't get involved unless and until a lower court decides that Trump should be removed from the ballot. That would really force the Supreme Court's hand in a lot of ways. These cases sound, as you've described, not only as long shots, but long, long, long shots at getting Trump off the ballot. Yeah, I do think they are very long shots, but I don't think the cases are going to stop until we get something definitive. Because one thing we know about Donald Trump is that he brings out the most extreme supporters and detractors. He's a polarizing figure. And so this is going to keep going until we know that this is a path that is not open to people. Thanks so much, Rick, for your insights. That's Professor Rick Hassan of UCLA Law School. And that's it for this edition of the Bloomberg Law Show. Remember, you can always get the latest legal news by listening to our Bloomberg Law podcast wherever you get your favorite podcasts. I'm June Grosso, and this is Bloomberg. From Silicon Valley to Wall Street, the promise and perils of artificial intelligence are playing out on the world stage. But what will the next phase of AI adoption look like? Which companies from big tech to startups will dominate? And where do the risks and unintended consequences lie? I'm Emily Chang. Join me at Bloomberg Tech in San Francisco, May 9th, to answer many of the industry's burning questions. Alongside SNAP's Evan Spiegel, Xbox President Sarah Bond, OpenAI's Brad Lightcap, top researcher Dr. Fei-Fei Li of Stanford, and many more. More details and just a few tickets left at Bloomberg.com slash TechSF.